a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we revel in wrong think, which is becoming more and more of a survival mechanism by the day in that uh, group think is rapidly overtaking large segments of our society. So if you can handle standing up sometimes even by yourself, you're going to do just fine. Nobody said that this was the easy way. In fact, one of the hardest truths of life, and, and it took me forever to finally embrace this and go, okay, all right, fine. I accept that this is reality, and the reality is nothing gets easier. It really doesn't. I remember my friend Isaac Morehouse from Praxis saying this a few years ago. You know, the more responsibility you take on, the bigger the risks, the bigger the things you try to accomplish, the harder and more complicated life is going to be. So embrace it. I guess just, you know, <laughs> acknowledge it for what it is. And, uh, and let's move forward. We've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about today. I'm going to first start by mentioning my sponsors, HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. So I didn't watch the president's speech last night. I know, it's. am I just being petulant? No, I don't watch any political speeches. I really don't. I just, I, I have better things to do. In this case, I think it was the dishes. But anyway, I've seen the the imagery coming out of there. And, you know, I honestly, there's a part of me that just is like, are are we being trolled here? For the president to come out and, well, I'm going to make this speech about the heart and soul of America and how I'm fighting for the heart and soul against these MAGA Republicans who are trying to destroy everything that we hold dear, which I guess would include affordable food and cheap gas. Anyway. But the lighting, holy cow. I mean, I, I had to dust off. I had to grab a, a couple of screenshots from V for Vendetta to see the uh, <laughs> Supreme Chancellor Adam Suttler's speech. And I went, oh my gosh, the, the color theme is the same red and black. The colors of blood and power, you know, it's just it was it was uh, very surreal. And, you know, I know that there are people who are very um, nervous. And, and I, I would say, yeah, there's, yeah, that's not a healthy thing. When, when the leader of the free world has to flex on TV like that, that is not the speech of someone who is firmly in control and competent. And, yes, we've got this. And, and you know, we can handle whatever the challenges are at hand. What you are seeing is uh, an administration and a system. It's not just the Biden administration. It's the whole corrupted system in Washington, D.C. That whole power structure. They're terrified. They know a reckoning is coming via the election, the midterm elections this uh, November. They know it. And so it just, it there's there's every appearance that the people in power are doing whatever they can to get things stirred up. Now, personally, you know, the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, it looks to me like um, Biden and his handlers and, and it's not just the Democrats, it's it's Republicans too, okay? It's it's the uh, 
Mitch McConnell's, it's the Liz Cheney's and, you know, the, the Rhino Republicans, the Mitt Romney's out there. They're very concerned about this, too, because they have aligned themselves with power over principle. And I think that uh, we have we have some real concerns with with what they're going to do. They're in danger of losing their power, not only in danger of losing their power, they're in danger of being held accountable for crimes against humanity and the things that they have supported that have actually destroyed people's lives. So, yeah, I can I can see why they would be nervous. They don't want to lose that power. They don't want to lose their benefits. They don't want to lose control of the people. And yet, uh, you know, how many people are going to sit back and be reasonable as they're watching their life savings worth less and less with every passing month? As they're barely able to keep up with their bills because of policies implemented by, again, not just this administration, but the whole, you know, uh, cabal there in Washington, D.C., that whole regulatory state. So there is potential for problems, but I'm going to caution, don't get too wrapped around the the axle, particularly on the president. I know uh, personalities tend to loom large in politics, just like in entertainment, right? There's a reason the daily tattler is always, you know, did you hear about what this person said? Did you hear what this person tweeted? Oh, wait, we don't don't have a president who can tweet anymore. (laughs) Never mind. At least we don't have mean tweets, right? The world's falling apart, but... No more mean tweets. So what do you do when the system itself stops working? Here's a good place to jump in. If you understand what's being taken from us, and I mean as individuals, you probably at some level understand the intended function of the system of government that our founders created and gave us. Judge Andrew Napolitano has an excellent essay on what we can do when the Constitution fails us. Napolitano says, I've been, I've been writing for years asking if we still have the U.S. Constitution. And that issue has come into sharper focus in the past 18 months as mayors and governors have created dictatorial powers and exercised those powers to interfere with personal autonomy in America. Now, he says, they've done this in utter disregard for the freedoms protected by the Constitution that they swore to uphold by asserting that uh, public health trumps personal liberty. But here's the backstory of what's happened. This is what I love about Judge Napolitano. Here's some of the framework so you can understand why this isn't just the way that it uh, was meant to be or that it's evolved as it was meant to. He says government is essentially the negation of freedom. If the values underlying the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, maximum personal liberty and minimal government. If we're to take those things seriously, then we all know that government has gone so far astray as to make it unrecognizable to the revolutionaries who fought the British and the founders and framers who wrote and ratified the Constitution and its first ten amendments. Now, he says, those underlying values are generally articulated in the first eight amendments which restrain the government from interfering in personal liberty. The Ninth Amendment codifies that our rights are too numerous to list And thus it requires the government to respect the natural unenumerated rights of all persons in addition to those rights specifically enumerated. Now he goes on to say, the Tenth Amendment reflects the ratifier's public understanding that the Constitution is a compact voluntarily entered into by sovereign states and when they entered, they only surrendered to the federal government 
those powers enumerated in the Constitution, and thus they retained the powers not surrendered. Now, all of this was the theoretical basis and public understanding of the American experiment in the 1780s and 1790s. And, of course, not all agreed with this. Many classical liberals opposed the ratification of the Constitution for fear that a new central government would control economic activities with its own bank or fight needless wars or invalidate state sovereignty and curtail civil liberties. Well, guess what? Their fears are now reality. The first serious federal attack on personal liberty came in the form of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, which criminalized criticisms of the federal government and the administration of President John Adams. Did you catch that? The same generation, in some cases, the same human beings that had written the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, did that just a mere seven years later. And in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, the two most prominent thinkers in America, Thomas Jefferson, who had written the Declaration of Independence, and James Madison, who was the scrivener of the Constitution and author of the Bill of Rights, secretly authored the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. Now, these manifestations of the compact theory of the Constitution were enacted into law by the Virginia and Kentucky legislatures. They declared the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional in their states. And these resolutions reflected the views of many of the ratifiers of the Constitution, that the states that formed the federal government retained the power to correct it. Stated differently, these state statutes declared the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were blatant violations of the freedom of speech, to be null and void in Virginia and Kentucky. The underlying value here is that because the Constitution is a voluntary compact, those states that formed it and joined it voluntarily have the sovereign power to leave it. Nullification and secession as ideas were cast aside by the Supreme Court and by the outcome of the war between the states. But the defeat of an idea politically, legally, or even militarily cannot always bury the idea permanently. When an idea's time has come, Judge Napolitano says nothing can stop it. Jefferson and Madison believed the Constitution protects the right to leave the government whenever it interferes with or fails to protect fundamental liberties. He says the very idea of secession terrifies government, whether it be the feds or the states, because if successful, it diminishes government power and income. Well, that sounds about right. We'll come back to Judge Napolitano's commentary in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for considering this program. I know there are many voices out there. I just, look, I hope what I'm doing is adding some kind of value or understanding to your day. And as much as it may horrify you to, <laughs> to hear some of the stuff that's going on, I hope you also feel inspired to stand up and to, to be one of those influences and one of those sources of light that the world needs so much right now. Our program is brought to you in part by Garage Door Pros, local company to St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and Colorado City, so that wonderful southwest uh, Utah corner, very much covered by Garage Door Pros, with quick response, much faster lead time, 
And, of course, uh, doors made right here in America. So for residential or for commercial uh, purposes, these are the folks you want to talk to when you need someone to install, service, and repair garage doors. Call them at 435-525-2773 or go to garagedoorproservices.com. So back to Judge Napolitano's uh, commentary on when the Constitution fails us. And I know this is a pretty daunting thing for, for a lot of folks, myself included, to consider. Well, what's, what's happened? Has the Constitution failed us? Is that why we have the situation that we have? Well, Judge Napolitano says there are actually two approaches to this question. A formal and a functional approach. Formally, the Constitution is still the supreme law of the land and enjoys vitality. Formally, the government, the Constitution established, persists in America. But functionally, as an instrument of restraint, well, he says the Constitution is an abysmal failure. The feds regulate, tax, coerce, steal, and kill, and they bully the states as they see fit. Every day, some government official who's taken an oath to uphold the Constitution violates it with impunity. And Napolitano says none of these violations, short of the war between the states, has been more public, affected more people, and produced more harm than the executive orders issued by mayors and governors in the name of public health. Even as the, even the states caved, as very few tried to protect the liberties that the Constitution guarantees. And he warns, it will soon get worse. Judge Napolitano says, as the Biden administration grows more fearful of its inability to control the latest strains of COVID-19, it will begin to use coercive means to compel mask-wearing and vaccine administration. And these so-called health measures are essentially experiments that, when administered coercively by the government, violate the letter, values, and lessons of Nuremberg. Napolitano asks, if vaccines work, why do we need masks? If masks work, why do we need vaccines? If I'm a free person, why do I need the government telling me how to be healthy? If only the legislative branch of government can write laws, why do we allow mayors and governors and centers for disease control and prevention to do so? If the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, how can the government attack the rights the Constitution protects? If freedom is our birthright, what has become of it? The time has come to nullify government interferences with personal autonomy by disregarding them and to threaten seriously to leave and ignore the governments that hate our freedoms. And he says, if we don't do this, we make way for voluntary servitude. That's pretty strong language. And Napolitano's a pretty straight-spoken, I mean, he's, he's not one to, you know, flower things up for you. What a crazy time. I mean, on the one hand, it, it, maybe you're like me, you struggle a little bit. Do I feel honored? A little bit flattered and maybe even humbled to stand, you know, at this kind of crossroad of history? Because I think what we're seeing play out before us is, is truly historical. Epic. Or do we feel like, oh, crap, why me? <laughs> why did, of all the times of human history that I could be, uh, you know, enjoying, why am I in the middle of this one? Personally, I take the first approach. But then again, you know, if you've listened to this program, you know, I, I believe there's purpose behind this. I, I believe that there is a creator. And I believe that uh, in the end, light will win out over darkness. But 
I also believe that each of us you know, has a role to play in making sure that we're sources of light. By the way, I want to piggyback off of Judge Napolitano's uh, essay for a moment. And uh, maybe it's just the raw lust for power that we're seeing in the eyes of so many public officials, but it's getting tougher and tougher to trust politicians to do the right thing. Ken McManigle, writing for EverythingVoluntary.com, says government is not worth the trade-off. He says, do you believe you need to be governed? I mean, you, as an individual. If you didn't feel like government was watching over your shoulder all the time, would you steal, kidnap, or murder? Ken says, I bet you wouldn't. Neither would I. He says, if you're saying you would commit crimes if not for government, I'm guessing you commit crimes anyway. No, by crimes, he says, I'm not talking about the counterfeit crimes that are only called crimes because government made up an arbitrary rule that says so. He says, I'm speaking of acts that have a specific individual victim whose life, liberty, or property has been violated in some concrete way. Now, he says, I doubt there are many in my audience who would ever actually do anything criminal. People who read these columns simply aren't the sort. In other words, you govern yourselves pretty well. Perfectly well. I'm sorry. So he says, you probably don't believe you need to be governed. I certainly don't. It would be a very defeatist attitude to take. Nor do I want you governed on my behalf. I'm not helpless. And then he says, I'm glad we settled that. Perhaps like most people who still believe political government is necessary. You think you're not the problem. It's all those other people out there who need to be governed, people who won't or can't govern themselves. Yet Ken McManigal says there are people among us who violate others. Some of them choose this as a lifestyle. It's habitual. As you may have noticed, they don't stop committing crimes simply because government exists to punish them. Just like you wouldn't become a criminal if government went away. Government makes it safer for the actual criminals to continue a life of crime. It protects criminals by enforcing rules or, or enforcing rules of rather against defending yourself and your property from them. Crime is largely a government-created problem, or at least a problem government doesn't want solved. And Kent McManigal says, maybe you can see that you don't need to be governed and that criminals can't be governed. But you imagine you still need government in your life for some reason. And he asks, do you need government in your marriage? Do you believe there are things only government can give you that you couldn't get on your own? Things only someone with the power to steal can hand out, like a powerful, crooked Santa Claus? You see his point? He says, there's nothing I want bad enough that I'm willing to have government steal it from you to give it to me. I'm not willing to trade what's right for what's expedient. And he asks, do you really believe it's worth the trade-off? Now, maybe I should have had a disclaimer beforehand, because that's a lot of straight-up truth, right? You'll notice uh, Kent McManigal dispenses with the sugar coating. <laughs> this is just, he's calling it as straight as, as he can. But I don't think he's wrong. And I, I may differ from him in this respect. I believe that there is such a thing as good government. But my definition of good government is a government that is so limited that uh, you have almost no interaction with it whatsoever. The only time you ever have any interaction with the state is when, as, as Kent described, an actual, measurable, provable harm has taken place where there's a victim, and it's, uh, I believe that the state can serve the function of seeing that justice prevails by holding accountable those who caused the harm 
and doing its best to restore, insofar as it's possible, the victim of whatever the the person did that was wrong. Now, I know that's, well, gee, Brian, that sure leaves a lot of stuff to people to make their own minds up. Exactly. Yes. That's the point. That's how it should be. That should be the default setting. Too many of us have been trained to think, well, you know, it's great if you want to try something different or you want to innovate, but uh, you should probably go get permission from somebody in authority first. No, freedom should be the default setting. The only time someone in authority should have any interaction with you is when there is literally a problem to be fixed, like a a crime that needs to be addressed. And I don't mean a made-up crime either. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. That would be, yep, the place you go to get your food storage, your emergency preparedness supplies. By the way, I I can't even begin to hint at uh, what an incredible comprehensive amount of uh, different types of food storage they have, as well as camping and emergency preparedness supplies. Really, you should go to the website and give yourself some time. Okay, give yourself 20 or 30 minutes to actually look and browse, maybe even price shop. The key is, this is stuff that's available right now. So it might be a good time to act if you're feeling like, you know, I should probably be doing something to bolster, you know, my preparedness situation. Lifesavingfood.com. Well, I know politicians are famous for insisting that we trust them, even when it's clear that they're not being completely honest with us. Donald Boudreaux has this wonderful essay that explains how we've been trained to believe that a miracle occurs whenever government intervenes. This is a great, uh, great way to uh, bolster your understanding of economics as well. He says there's a single, there's a famous single frame cartoon by Sidney Harris from many years ago that captures what is wrong, what's deeply unscientific about far too much modern economics. In the cartoon, two professors stand beside each other in front of a chalkboard filled with complex mathematics. The more senior professor points to one part of the elaborate line of reasoning depicted on the chalkboard and counsels his younger colleague, I think you should be more specific here in step two. Step two, sparse and simple in the middle of the complicated math on both sides reads, then a miracle occurs. Now the cartoon is undeniably funny. It's also remarkably revealing of the decidedly unfunny reality that much of modern economics is akin to the chain of elaborate reasoning depicted on the cartoon's chalkboard. In doing economic policy analysis, Don Boudreaux says, economists too readily assume that miracles regularly occur. Now, the main miracle assumed by the unscientific, scientific modern economists who recommend government intervention is that government officials will act apolitically and do so not only without any of the human imperfections, myopia, and psychological quirks that are assumed to give rise to the market imperfections that allegedly justify government intervention, but also will act with more information and wisdom than is discovered and used in markets. He's right. I see that mindset at work. Well, you know, that's what the government has people to deal with. These are top men. Top men are on this. Anyway, back to Donald Boudreaux's article. 
All of the elaborate reasoning that leads up to the occurrence of this miracle, and all that's used to describe matters following the occurrence of this miracle, might well be the flawless product of unquestionable brilliance. But he says this brilliance neither excuses the trick step of assuming that a miracle occurs, nor renders the results of such theorizing valid. He says it's inexcusably unscientific for economists, or anyone for that matter, to merely assume that government will perform miracles, but that's exactly what they assume. Advocates of industrial policy are among the chief, of, chief offenders. Seemingly without exception, these advocates assume that government officials charged with carrying out industrial policy are, when they take office, miraculously transformed into apolitical angels who have access to all the detailed knowledge that must be known for them to replace the market's allocation of resources. He says other officials who are assumed to work miracles are politicians with the power to implement minimum wages. Economists, ever clever in recollecting their, under, recollecting their undergraduate course in labor economics, recall that it's possible to draw on a whiteboard a pretty picture that reveals conditions under which a minimum, rate, minimum wage rather will raise the wages of low-skilled workers without pushing any of them into the ranks of the unemployed. Now, actual politicians who impose minimum wage somehow discover these conditions in reality and with no thought of political advantage to themselves, impose minimum wages that are scientifically and precisely calibrated to these theoretical conditions. Pretty good tongue-in-cheek here, huh? Miracles are also performed by bureaucrats at agencies such as the Food and Drug Administration and the Federal Reserve. Never so venal as to concern themselves with the size of their budgets or with their future employment prospects. He says these officials are concerned always and only with improving the well-being of their fellow citizens. FDA scientists to perform their duties as advertised need to know the different risk preferences of hundreds of millions of Americans in order to decide which pharmaceuticals and medical devices are sufficiently safe and effective. How do they come to possess such knowledge? Why, by some miracle. Donald Boudreau says Fed savants to perform their duties as advertised must have knowledge of just how and when to manipulate the supply of money so that maximum economic growth is fueled. And while many of these savants insist that while optimal supplies of likes of machine tools, mangoes, steel, and stilettos can only be discovered through the competitive market process, the optimal quantity of money must be divined by them as they confabulate in a majestic office building. And he says such divination is miraculous. Now, Donald Boudreau says miracles are also assumed to be at work whenever economists advise governments on how to protect the environment. The same clever economist who's enchanted with diagrams showing optimal minimum wages is similarly enthralled by the ability of carbon taxes to reduce carbon emissions. This economist is indeed correct that higher taxes on emissions of carbon result in reduced carbon emissions. This outcome is the stuff of Econ 101. It requires no miracle. The miracle occurs when the economist concludes that government officials can know in practice with sufficient certainty that carbon emissions should be reduced and by how much. Another more minorable miracle is assumed to occur when the economist divines the exact impact on carbon emissions of proposed higher taxes on such emissions. But he says, I'm, I'll ignore this minor miracle here. 
He says, for government to intervene to reduce carbon emissions is for government to intervene to reduce economic activities that either rely on carbon-based fuels or that produce carbon emissions as a byproduct or both. While one need not possess godlike powers to understand that costless reductions in carbon emissions would be a blessing, because reductions in carbon emissions are emphatically not costless, one does need godlike knowledge to know if any proposed government-engineered reduction would, in the real world, yield benefits greater than those costs. He says economists and environmentalists can speculate until cows stop flatulating about what the benefits of reduced carbon emissions will be and how these benefits stack up against the costs. But Donald J. Boudreaux says the unfathomable complexity of the modern economy combines with the extensive use of carbon fuels to render all such speculation little better than voodoo. We can all agree that if an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God were to appear on the scene and offer his services to optimize environmental policy, we'd be bonkers to reject this offer of assistance. God, after all, can work miracles. But he says we are equally bonkers to swallow much of the interventionist advice of flesh-and-blood economists. These people only think that they are miracle workers. And so their advice too often if unintentionally, furthers only the designs of the devil. I love it. One of the best essays I've seen all week. And yes, that's linked to in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That is one that is worth rereading and perhaps even sharing with some friends, just because it, it describes so perfectly. When, when we hand things off to government, isn't there that implicit assumption, well, somebody in there knows what they're doing, or there's enough somebody's working on this, they'll figure it all out. And the thing that blows me away is, why can't we apply that kind of thinking to the free market? Because there people actually have incentive to solve problems. I think it was Charlie Reese, who used to write for the Orlando Sentinel. Years ago, he described how is it that bureaucracies become so entrenched in whatever their area of expertise happens to be. And I thought his answer was right on the money. I thought, actually, it, it was very illustrative. Charlie Reese said, now, keep in mind, this is, you know, 30 years ago. But he says, you bet pay me $50,000 a year to pursue a problem. I'll make damn sure that problem never goes away. So age-adjusted, maybe we'd say 90000 or $100,000 a year. You pay me a good amount of money, and I think uh, those working within the uh, public sector, particularly at the federal level, enjoy, shall we say, a better than average pay and benefits. Nothing's too good when the taxpayers are footing the bill. (laughs) But he makes a good point, don't you think? Yeah, if my job is to work on this problem, you bet that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on this problem. Well, are you going to solve it? Well, no, if I solve it, then I'm out of job. Mm. And yet, that's exactly how the private sector works. They're there to solve the problem and and move on. By solving the problem, they are actually, you know, I mean, people can withdraw their support. They can withdraw their patronage if they don't like, you know, the solution that you're proffering. But they have to get results. That's not true with government. With government, all you have to do is have intentions. Well, we've got intentions and a lot of taxpayer dollars. I guess uh, we'll just get to work here as their feet get propped up on the desk. Sorry, that's probably not fair. They're hard workers, but again, the question comes, what exactly are they accomplishing again? 
pushing all that paper around? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Feel free to subscribe to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And while you're there, click on that link that says hslammo.com. Go buy yourself some ammo. Go have some fun. Go make a joyous noise for freedom out at the gun range. It's good for you. I think Thomas Jefferson talked about how that was one of his favorite forms of exercise. You pick up a rifle and go out and hike around and hunt, plink, whatever the case may be. Now, I realize that's not on the table for everybody, but to me, that still sounds like a pretty good afternoon. All right. Nonetheless, a couple things to touch on here in uh, the closing segment. I'm going to share this article. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, and, and I, I don't share this in the interest of, boy, here's one more reason to panic. But I've got an article here from Milan Adams, Food Confiscation, How to Protect Your Food Stores and Production from government confiscation. And this is this may sound like, oh, great, here we go. Here's one of these end-time scenarios where the government's going to round up everybody's food and herd us off into camps. And That's not what, uh, what this individual's writing about here. It's that, that creeping control over our ability to either store food or produce more of our own food. And this is one of the things that really struck me is to even have a very small subsistence farm to grow or raise food for your family. There are many states that require you to register with them. I mean, this is, this is something maybe you should be aware of. Did you know government is currently trying to identify and register all food producers? Why would they want to do that? Now, whether you're aware or not, Anytime the president deems necessary, there are executive orders that say the U.S. can now confiscate key resources in the name of national security. And I guess in particular, that could include your food storage. The food you worked hard to grow or raise could be seized. So naturally, it makes no sense to spend your time and money developing a farming capability to insulate your family from hard times only to have it seized. Isn't that what Stalin did, by the way? Okay, just just checking. But by following a few basic rules, you can help to protect your food supply and ensure that uh, those that help cause the collapse and refuse to prepare aren't fed on your watch. Now, I realize this is kind of looking at a worst-case scenario, but there's some great advice in this article. And and I, I was surprised to find out, you know, how... how uh, the, the attentive eyes of government are being fixed on people. For instance, this is not from the federal level. This is at the state level. In North Carolina, you have to register with the state if you have even one chicken. One. And ostensibly, that's done to rapidly inform, monitor, and protect the state's poultry farmers from avian flu strains. But anytime someone starts talking about protecting anything, you should start to suspecting subterfuge. In this case, the government suddenly feels like, well, you should be forced to register even if you have one chicken. See, the problem here is by the government's own admission, small isolated flocks have almost no risk of catching or passing the current avian flu strains due to their ability to intermingle with wild waterfowl and spread the virus to other birds. 
So as such, the article says one must consider alternative reasons why government would feel it's so necessary to pry deeply into private citizens' lives. Now, if they were focusing purely on large commercial poultry farms, the author says I could entertain the government's arguments, but they're not. This North Carolina regulation targets even an owner of a single bird as a pet. And as such, it's far too broad to be considered justifiable. And in uh, Wisconsin, if you have potbilly pigs or rabbits, you're supposed to register with the state. Michigan and Indiana mandate registration of any livestock of any number of any kind being kept anywhere. So beware. Just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, boy, here comes the black market. The author here says, my concern is to warn and inform those of you amongst us that have proven immune to brainwashing and still have free-thinking independent minds. You're the ones who are, are likely to recognize this threat. Most people are going to be willfully ignorant and blind supporters of government tyranny. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to the people who are paying attention. And if you can recognize that there's a growing trend at both the federal and state level of forcing everybody with livestock, orchards, gardens, etc., to register with government. Beekeepers, by the way, some, some states require that too. Why would they want that? Why are they compiling this database? The author here says, well, there's no doubt the government will use that database to extract, to extract fees and taxes, to conduct inspections and raids, and ultimately, should the need arise, to confiscate your food. So to prevent... Uh, to prevent and to mitigate possible confiscation attempts from both government agents as well as looters. They offer four different rules of food security. Now, I'm going to let you discover those on your own. These are solid bits of advice, though. And I hope, that, uh, I hope you'll take the time to check it out for yourself. It's a great article. Again, this is from uh, prepgroup.home.blog. The author is Milan Adams. All right, one final thought here. This is from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org. Asking the question, is boredom driving our culture of lunacy? I just like that phrase, culture of lunacy. Jeff Minnick says, somebody's boring me. Poet Dylan Thomas once commented, I think it's me, he added. Jeff Minnick says, were you to become a fly on the wall or in this age of electronic wonders, a tiny drone? you might observe my daily life and decide that I'm the most boring human on the planet. I follow the same daily routine for the most part, even down to playing solitaire while eating yogurt for breakfast so as to avoid taking vitamins on an empty stomach. I read, write, write some more, fuss with the yard, take a nap or two, wash the dishes, and occasionally deep clean a part of the house. When I get a little stir-crazy, I drive to town where I visit a coffee shop or shop at the local grocery store and and drop in at the library a couple of times a week. But he says, like many people, however, the interior self is another matter altogether. I'm always searching for writing topics, and I entertain pleasant thoughts about my children and grandchildren and friends, and not-so-pleasant thoughts about the state of our country. I won't say I'm a bonfire of ideas, but there's always a fire in the hearth. In other words, Madam NUI and I are at best passing acquaintances, until one day last week, and at the beach of all places. He says, it was the final day of my stay at the coast, For different reasons, the last of my kids and grandkids had departed for their homes ahead of schedule that Friday morning, but my room reservation ran until Saturday, so he stayed with a friend for one more day. 
The two-bedroom suite was spacious and accommodating, but after a day of hard, steady rain had confined us to quarters, I was bored. And he says television wasn't an option. Even if I was a viewer of the tube, I doubt whether I could have figured out how to operate that electronic cyclops, cyclops in the den. So I wrote, read a bit, and took a nap. I've read that dogs, unlike humans, take naps when bored, and I decided to follow suit. But it was a long, dreary confinement. And he says, by bedtime, I'd cleaned out my backpack and carefully packed for the trip home. But those welcome diversions took less than 45 minutes. Now, at one point, he says, I even looked up several online articles about boredom. One of them included a test determining whether one is suffering from transient or chronic boredom. And he says, I glanced at a few of the questions, but found myself too disinterested to answer more than the first three. So as I consider my inert self... A thought occurred. Is our culture so bored that we seek out new and exciting entertainments, girls becoming boys, men having babies, racism around every corner, Democrats in Congress spending hundreds of billions of dollars? Are the members of Antifa fervent and educated ideologues, or are they burning cars, looting stores, and beating people in the streets in order to escape another humdrum evening of playing Grand Theft Auto V? Did Attorney General Merrick Garland order the raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home to thwart his re-election hopes, or did he just wake up one morning bored out of his skull, wanting to whip up some excitement? Is Joe Biden cloistered from public view these days because of his dementia, or because he's just fed up with the whole presidential thing? Now, the point he makes here, there's, there's more to this article that I hope you'll check out, but Jeff Minnick says claiming to be bored as an adult should be embarrassing. He says, even in my brief stint with apathy recounted above, that's shameful. We live in a world of providential natural wonders and a man-made carnival of electronic amusements. Listless apathy, other than for a prisoner in solitary confinement, is unbecoming. And the fault, as Dylan Thomas noted, lies not in others, but in ourselves. He concludes by saying all of humanity's problems stem from man's ability to sit quietly in a room alone. Actually, that was uh, Blake Pascal who wrote that. Blaise Pascal, rather. After my long day of being confined to quarters, Jeff Minnick says, I think old Pascal was on to something. Well, I, for one, am never bored, although I am often, often apathetic. Huh. I guess I'm going to have to figure that one out. Thanks again for joining us. Please check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.